March 15th, 44 BC. History buffs will know this date right away. Senators of the Roman Republic gathered in the theater of Pompeii on the day that they called the Ides of March. Many of the senators conspired together to assassinate Julius Caesar on this infamous day. Caesar reveled in his meteoric rise in the Roman Republic. He led Rome to conquer all of Gaul, which today is France. So Caesar returned home, not just as a civilian, but as a champion. And soon after Caesar crossed the, again, infamous Rubicon River, he declared himself dictator in perpetuity. So this set up an existential conflict between Caesar and between the Senate. As those in the Old West used to say, even Rome wasn't big enough for the two of them. So led by Caesar's former companion, Marcus Brutus, the Roman senators stabbed Julius Caesar to death on March 15, 44 BC. But there was a tragic irony in the assassination of Julius Caesar. The senators who sought to recapture the Roman Republic ended up losing the Roman Republic. With Caesar's death, naturally there was a vacuum of power. Brutus spied for the throne against Mark Antony. But they would have to deal with Caesar's own heir apparent, his, his young grandnephew, Octavian. Octavian proved shrewder and more powerful than his rivals, and Octavian emerged as the first emperor, not of the Roman Republic, but of the Roman Empire. So why a history lesson at the beginning of a sermon? The assassination and the aftermath of Julius Caesar's death displays a principle for us. The principle is simply this. You need a plan of succession. You need to train up leaders. And in order to do this, you have to acknowledge that you can't work or live forever, at least on earth. You can't do all the jobs in all the places. You can't be in every place at one time. So if any movement or any kingdom or any even group desires to last in the long term, or even desires to expand to new fronts, well then that movement or group or kingdom must train up leaders and pass down leadership in order to survive. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing in his epistle or letter to Titus. Paul's not a king. But Paul is a servant of the King, the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended King Jesus. And King Jesus uses Paul to continue his kingdom and spread it to new territories. But Paul knows he won't be on earth forever. Paul knows he can only be in one place at one time. So if Paul wants to see Jesus' kingdom continue, if he wants to see Jesus' kingdom even expand to new places, well, then he must train up new leaders and pass down leadership. So he writes this letter to Titus, a pastor he places in the Mediterranean island of Crete. And although Paul's letter is to Titus, Paul intends the effects of this letter to go through Titus. Through Titus, Paul wants to see Jesus' great commission continue. We noticed a great commission a couple weeks ago 
the great commission of more disciples of Jesus being made. Paul wants to see that happen on this little island of Crete. He wants to see those disciples of Jesus gathered into healthy churches. He wants to see them under the leadership of pastors, pastors who champion and guard and model the gospel of Jesus so that the gospel of Jesus is central to everyday life for the Christians in Crete. And when all of this is in place, Paul says, then the Christians in Crete will live godly lives that are attractive to the non-Christians around them. And when all of this is in place, then the Christians in Crete will persevere in the face of opposition because they have, they have eternal hope that is theirs in Christ. This is kind of the book of Titus in summary. And Titus is almost Jesus' plan for the longevity and the expansion of his church. So if you're not with me there, uh, turn to the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You'll find it toward the end of the Bible. Uh, when somebody Wednesday night observed very astutely that all of the T's are pretty much together. Thessalonians, Timothy, and then Titus. Uh, so toward the end of the Bible, if you're looking at the Bibles provided, it's on page, I think, 999. Uh, and if you are new to the Bible, this is a great place to be. Welcome. Uh, this is what we do pretty much every Sunday, is open a part of the Bible and see to explain it and apply it. Uh, so when I say chapter number, that is the number that is the big, bold number on the page, and the verse number are the little numbers that come after that. So we're in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And I was inspired as I went to this conference uh, a couple weeks ago. After I read uh, scripture during the sermon each Sunday, I usually say something like, this is God's word. Friends, if you agree with that, can we all say together, thanks be to God. Okay, so we'll get prepared for that in a moment. And last thing, this might be new, this might be different, this might be take time to, to, to get used to. If you agree with anything said during the sermon, because we're all listening to it together, you are more than welcome to give a hearty amen. 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 <laughs> that is not to draw attention to yourself. Do that as a way to encourage those who are hearing so, Titus 1, 1-4, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. If we were to sum up this paragraph in one main point, we find it on the back of your bulletin, it would be this. Paul offers Titus a model for gospel ministry that grows others' faith in and knowledge of Christ and perseveres because of the sure hope eternal life. Now, as you read through this first paragraph, you might have said this sounds familiar because if you read other letters from Paul, this is pretty standard practice for how Paul opens a letter. He says something about himself, he maybe gives a little bit of blessing, he says something about who he's writing to. So whether you read Romans or Galatians or 1 Timothy, this is almost pretty standard practice. And that might tempt us to think, well, we can just skip over this to get to the juicy part. Well, my friends, if we believe, just as we said last week, that every word of the Bible 
comes from the Holy Spirit. So Paul, even in this introduction, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is deliberate with how he uh, introduces himself and addresses Timothy. He wastes no words. He has a purpose. Like a good musical composer who writes an overture, Paul includes some of the themes of his entire letter really quickly in the beginning of that letter. So we'll cover this paragraph under three headings. First, Paul's purpose in gospel ministry. Second, Paul's perseverance in gospel ministry. And third, finally, Paul's protege in gospel ministry. Just a heads up, the first point is the longest. So if it seems like we're going on for a while, have hope. Okay, persevere. Now it's our prayer today that the Lord would correct our course any place where we might have strayed. It's our prayer that may God strengthen us in any place we have grown weary. And as always, it's our prayer that God would show us the glorious face of Christ through his word. So let's notice first Paul's purpose in gospel ministry. Return with me to verse 1, which says, starts off, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ for, press the pause button right there, after the word for. Before we explain and reflect, I want you to see what Paul's doing as he opens up. He first describes who he is with titles or offices, and then the word for is a connecting word. In this instance, it indicates purpose. So Paul is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for a certain purpose. Just from the start, how valuable would this be to somebody like Titus? It's like Paul's clarifying, Titus, do you know why I do what I do? Do you know what I'm trying to accomplish in my ministry? I know you might know it, but I don't want to assume that you know it. Titus, I don't even want to assume that you remember it. So I'm going to tell you again my purpose for why I do what I do. The purpose is twofold. As we'll see soon enough, but I do want to hone in briefly on Paul's self-description, the titles he gives himself. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shouldn't skip over that. Paul claims authorship of this letter. He claims to be the guy who wrote it. There's no reason why we shouldn't take that at face value. Now, for those who might not know or remember, we meet Paul. Uh, actually, the first time his name is Saul way back in the book of Acts, chapter 7. Paul represents just a powerful testimony of the sovereign grace of God. That by God's own choice and God's power, God can save anybody, and he can bend any purpose and any person for his own will. That showed up in Paul's life. Because the Saul who sought to destroy the church, ended up becoming the Paul responsible for disseminating the church throughout all the Mediterranean world. Only a sovereign God can do that. And so given this letter's, the book of Titus, its letter's similarity to 2 Timothy, it's likely that Paul wrote this letter between his second and third stint in prison. Now, you might be wondering, what was Paul's repeated offense? Was he a, a, a lifelong criminal? Well, his crime was simply that of treason or sedition. He proclaimed another king besides Caesar, King Jesus. So maybe another observation about Paul being the author. If, if Paul writes this letter around the same time as 2 Timothy, then 
Paul writes this letter toward the end of his life. He's in the final stretch. So in the final stretch of Paul's life, with all that Paul's experienced, with all the miracles he's witnessed, with all of the churches that Paul has established, all of that, what is the first way that Paul describes himself to Titus? With all that he's done, with all that he's accomplished, the first way he describes himself, a servant of God. Here's a subtle reminder to Titus that no matter how much he grows, no matter how much he does, growth and becoming more like Christ, that does not look like ascending the escalator in search of adulation. Growth of being more like Christ actually descends the escalator in humility. The sign of growth in Christ's likeness is an increasing self-awareness about who you are in relation to God. I'm just a servant. The more Paul achieved, the more humble. So Titus might not be a fellow apostle. Titus might not be a fellow eyewitness of the risen Christ and personally commissioned by Jesus. But you know what? That's not the title that Paul mentions first. The first title he mentions is that Paul and Titus joined the long line of servants of God. And it's not just the order of these titles that's exemplary. It's the direction of these titles that are exemplary. The direction is not horizontal, it's vertical. A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is pointing upward. These titles deflect attention and importance away from Paul and toward God the Father and God the Son. And really, how can it be any other direction? Especially for a guy who wrote Titus chapter 3, verse 5, a little sneak preview. Titus 3, verse 5. You can go ahead and look there. And notice the, just the first three words of that verse. God saved us. For somebody who knows and believes that God is responsible entirely for the initiative, the accomplishment, the application of my salvation, that it is God alone, how could the direction be anything else besides vertical? servant of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, anybody who uses Spotify music streaming service uh, will know that at the end of the year, it will give you a list of songs that you listen to the most during that year. Often that list can be kind of embarrassing if you, if you publish that. But my guess is that the apostle Paul had a Spotify account that among his most played songs would be a song. Probably Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. You see the order of these titles and, and the direction of these titles. But now, notice the purpose behind these titles. What's the purpose of Paul's service to God and apostleship to Jesus Christ? Well, his purpose is twofold. First, it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So a lot here is worth unpacking. Maybe a question. So does Paul mean the initial response of faith? Like trying to get someone to believe for the first time? Or does Paul have the purpose of strengthening someone's faith who's already in place? 
kind of ongoing work. I think Paul probably means a little bit of both here, and it's clear from his other writings, even in this letter, he cares about both the initial response of faith and our ongoing faith, but maybe a parallel verse can help us get a little bit more clarity. Let me just flip back a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It's a good sound. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. It sounds a lot similar to Titus 1, 1. So we're backing up a little bit. God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Those two parts sound really similar to Titus 1, 1. That leads me to think that Paul is emphasizing a little bit more here in Titus the initial response of faith. Not just the ongoing faith. And so that leads to another question. It, Paul just says faith, nothing else. What does he mean by it? What does he mean by faith? Because we use that word all the time. We use that word basically to indicate a vague sense of optimism. In the same vein, if, if you know the old song by George Michael, you gotta have faith, faith, faith. <laughs> we really don't know what George Michael means, but it's catchy. So we'll go along with it. But here Paul, he speaks many times in this letter about the content and even the object of their faith. Their faith, even from the next phrase, has the substance of truth. And the truth, as Paul puts it in Titus 2, verses 13 to 14, the truth is the truth of the gospel. That our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So, back up, review. Paul serves God. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the purpose of the faith of God's elect, to bring about faith in those God has chosen. So Paul preaches the gospel to everybody, but he doesn't know who's going to have faith. He preaches the gospel to everybody, but he does know that some will respond. He knows that because he knows that God has chosen people. We saw this in action when we read Acts chapter 18. There's a situation there. Paul's in Corinth, continuing out in Corinth, and it seems like Paul's afraid. It's sort of unlike him. Well, if you consider what Paul has been through up to this moment, Paul has been driven out of town after town. He's been arrested. He's been beaten. He's even been stoned. And so he comes to a moment when he's tempted to skirt out of a town a little bit early because he can sense some of the growing waves of contention and opposition. Paul might be tempted to think, I already know how the people here are going to respond. So I'm not going to waste my time. Christian brother and sister, have you avoided speaking the gospel to somebody for that same reason? I didn't know I was going to respond. I'm not going to waste my time. At that moment is when Jesus speaks to Paul. And how does Jesus strengthen Paul? How does Jesus meet Paul? Acts 18, 9 to 10. 
Lord says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So what is it that convinced Paul that preaching the gospel wasn't a waste of time? He knew that God had chosen people in that city. My friends, you might hear this. I don't know, maybe it's more articulate than uh, what I'm about to say, but you might hear the doctrine of election being criticized because people say it pours water on the fire of evangelism. May we never use it as an excuse not to share the gospel. But the doctrine of election, that is not how it worked for Paul. The doctrine of election was not watered for his fire for evangelism. It was fuel for his fire of evangelism. I mean, how else could Paul be confident that anybody would respond in faith to the gospel if God had not chosen people, if God did not have people in that city? That's what compelled Paul to go. That's what convinced Paul to stay. How can it be anything else? If it's really true that what Ephesians 2 says, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, my friends, dead people can't help themselves. It's over dependent on our power and our ingenuity and our turn of phrase. And guess what? Preaching the gospel would be a waste of time. But dead people are brought to life, not because of their works, but as Romans 9, verse 11 says, dead people are brought to life because of him who calls. Paul wants Titus to preach the gospel. He wants to do it with, he wants him to do it with confidence. Confidence in God's sovereign, effective, and gracious choice of his elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. This is Paul's first purpose. And so just before we go to the second purpose. A word to anybody here who does not yet trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, or at the very least, who is not clear that they trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You might wonder, how do I know if God has chosen me? Friends, that's not up for you to know. All I would say is, what if God has placed you here this morning to hear the good news that Jesus was sent into the world to die for sinners? You don't need to wonder that if God has chosen you, all you need to do is feel your need for him. Paul's second purpose for gospel ministry is their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. So faith is resting, trusting, and relying. But as we said, faith is not some vaguely optimistic resting, trusting, and relying. There is substance to our faith. We cannot rest in the truth of the gospel if we do not first know the truth of the gospel, have knowledge of it. Our faith in Jesus will be shaky if we do not have a firm foundation of knowledge of Jesus. So again, you might hear some advocate probably more articulate than this. Might, some might advocate, you know what, just when it comes to church, when it comes to preaching, when it comes even to evangelism, just give people Jesus. I don't avoid the doctrine stuff. Because doctrine can confuse people. And in the worst case, doctrine and more nitty-gritty truth can actually divide people. Well, here's the deal with that. That's not Paul's method. Just consider the simple statement. 
Jesus died for, for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. That statement. You might say, that's a great statement. Just tell people that. Well, my friend, if you want to unpack that statement of what it means, you need doctrine. You need truth. Literally every word of that statement has doctrine behind it. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus, well, who is Jesus? What enables him to die for our sins? Jesus died. Why is death necessary? What kind of death did Jesus die? Did Jesus stay dead? Jesus died for. That sounds like substitute language. How can Jesus stand in our place as our substitutes? Jesus died for our. Well, whose sins has Jesus paid for? Has he paid for the sins of even of those who don't trust him? Jesus died for our sins. What is sin? Why is it penalty death? Jesus died for our sins. It sounds like a simple statement, but behind every word is truth or doctrine. So one of Paul's purposes is for the sake of their knowledge of, their, of the truth. And so even like the book of Romans is Paul basically unpacking what appears to be a very simple statement. And it is a simple statement, but it's not simplistic. It's built upon a thorough foundation of the truth. That's because in all of this, Paul doesn't just want converts. Paul wants disciples. Paul doesn't just want those who have raised their hands while everybody's eyes are closed. Paul doesn't want those who have just walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and then forget about it for 20 years. Paul wants active followers of Jesus who know what they believe. The church has done a poor job, and many Christians don't know what they believe. All the truth behind a simple statement, like Jesus died for our sins. But more than this, too, that the knowledge is not an end in itself. You keep reading the verse. The knowledge is a means to an end. The knowledge is the way to become godly. So just as Paul doesn't just want converts, Paul doesn't want bobblehead Christians. I have a, not a great bobblehead collection. I do not aspire to be a bobblehead. <laughs> Friends, let me tell you, it's, it's possible to love this truth that Paul's talking about, to love doctrine, to love learning, to love sitting in Sunday school each week. We praise God for Sunday school. To love Bible studies, to accumulate more and more facts. But if your knowledge stops there, you'll be a bobblehead. There's a reason why the Bible says knowledge pops up. Paul wants fully formed Christians, not just with big heads, but with strong bodies and warm hearts. When our knowledge of Jesus gets bigger, our faith in Jesus it gets sturdier. When our knowledge of Jesus gets bigger, our loyalty to Jesus should get solidified. When our knowledge of Jesus gets bigger, our love for Jesus should grow warmer. Knowledge is not an end in itself. Jesus is not interested that you can know every answer to Bible jeopardy if you are living in sin. 
Paul knows how crucial that uh, this is for the churches in Crete, as we'll find out, because the churches in Crete are surrounded by false teaching, false knowledge. They're surrounded by axioms and values that produce sinful living, not godly living. So he teaches with the goal of godliness. So the bigger our knowledge of the truth, the godlier we should be. The knowledge Paul teaches is not bookish or theoretical, it's practical. We see that in his letters to all the churches. Uh, and, and maybe even an example, if you can flip back to the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4, 32. This is so easy to see. And when you see this connection between truth and godliness, you see it everywhere, especially in Paul's uh, letters. Ephesians 4, 32. This might be a good memory verse for you, especially if you're married. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. That sounds like instructions for godly living. As God in Christ forgave you, there's the truth part of it. So the truth that they know, God's forgiven me, should lead them to live forgiving others. Truth leads to godliness. Knowledge, not just as bobbleheads, strong bodies, and big hearts. Those are Paul's purposes for gospel ministry. As I promise, the next two points are much shorter. Next, he goes to his perseverance. So these purposes of, I want to bring about faith in, in the people God has chosen. I want to teach them so that they live godlier lives. Those purposes sound great, but when you actually get boots on the ground and start to do them, well, it turns out those purposes aren't that popular. Even in churches that claim to be Christian, churches like Galatia and Corinth, not only are they not popular, but these purposes are just painfully slow going. And so how does Paul persevere? How does Paul not lose heart? That's verses 2 and 3 of Titus 1. Look again there with me. This is really the source of every Christian's perseverance. Paul writes, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So let's say a company hired two different workers to do the same job. Worker number one gets hired, takes the job. He's not thrilled about the salary, but he knows the job market is very slim pickings. He needs a job, and so he's just going to worry about the salary. So he actually signs a contract that commits him to the job for 20 years. Now you might tell me, Steve, who in the world would do that? Well, this is an illustration, so bear with me. The job for worker number one doesn't get easier as time goes on. He gets a basic salary, he can pay his bills, he can do occasional fun things. Oh boy, the years begin to take a toll. Worker number one, his, his compensation does not outweigh the difficulty of his job. And so, he begins to resent his job. He begins to be bored by his job. And he wants to quit. But he's stuck. Worker number two gets hired for the same job. 
but he experiences even more scrutiny than worker number one. He gets placed alongside other workers who haze him and mock him. But worker number two knows his department head really well, and his department head looks out for him every day. More than that, worker number two is promised a bonus at the end of his contract. Worker number one missed out on that meeting and he doesn't know about this bonus. Worker number two knows that there is a bonus of $5 billion at the end of his 20-year contract. Do you think that would motivate you to go to your job day in and day out? Do you think worker number two would resent his job as much as worker number one? Worker number two knows that the job sucks sometimes, but his compensation far outweighs the difficulty of his job. He doesn't want to quit. He wants to persevere. He can joyfully stop. I've heard others tell this similar illustration way better than me, but I hope you can relate. Knowing what's coming in the future empowers us to persevere in the present. If you read the Bible, especially if you read Paul's writings, this is just how Paul lives and operates. You see it all the time. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Corinthians 15.19, If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why do you think so many Christians are so depressed? I think they have hope in Christ for this life only. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christian, I, I, I don't want to minimize struggles or hardships, but I wonder, could you be weary because you're seeking satisfaction in your earthly compensation, in your earthly rewards and wages? Could it be that the thing you're looking forward to, the thing that you, that you use to keep yourself going is the next weekend, the next vacation, the next season of Stranger Things? Yes, okay, I'm looking forward to that too. The next hit of pleasure, of, of entertainment, Friends, the giver has given many good earthly gifts, but the source of our perseverance is not what's here, it's what lies ahead, in hope of eternal life. My friend, if you are not a Christian, we are grateful you're here. But do you really think that you're meant to find full joy and meaning and purpose in the pleasures of this life? My friend, don't you have a nagging sense that there has to be something better than the dream of a middle-class, comfortable life? Don't you think there has to be something more than just that? The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity on each one of our hearts. My friend, if you have that nagging sense, don't ignore that feeling. Let me tell you, there are two prospects before you and before each one of us. I'm not going to beat around the bush about it. So the prospects are eternal life or eternal death. I want you to think about this verse, Romans 6, 23, and talk with someone about what to do about it today. For the wages of sin 
is given. And the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's able to persevere in gospel ministry because of the hope of eternal life. And he describes this hope further. He describes it, he's, he's, tell, he's telling Titus basically, Titus holding on to this hope is not some cosmic game of pin the tail on the donkey. That we're, we're just blindfolded, we're wondrously aiming around, like, I really hope that hope is out there somewhere. No, Paul is emphasizing to Titus, you can stake your life on this hope. Because it was promised before the ages began, from eternity past, Ephesians 1.4 says that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. You can stake your life on this hope, Titus, because God is the one who promised it. And God is truthful. He does not, cannot lie. You can stake your hope on this, Titus, because God hasn't just promised eternal life. He's delivered on this promise of eternal life. Galatians 4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God hasn't just delivered on this promise. He has now announced that he has delivered on this promise through the preaching of his word. So here's multi-layered instruction for Titus. It's like a, a bite of delicious German tort cake. Multi-layers. The hope of what lies ahead, Titus, is how you persevere. The hope of what lies ahead, Titus, that hope is sure. You can bank your life on it. The hope of what lies ahead is what you announce. That's relief for a young pastor. We don't need to do field research. We don't need to do targeted ads in some futile attempt to make Christianity more marketable. We announce the hope that God is fully revealed and fully accomplished. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lastly, quickly, Paul's told us who he is, what he aims to do, and how he keeps going. He transitions to focus on his recipient of his letter, Titus, one of his protégés. Paul calls Titus his true child in a common faith. Now, don't let that word child lead you to think that Titus is unprepared or inexperienced. We don't see Titus around Paul as much as we see Timothy around Paul, but Titus has been around Paul for a long time. He pops up in little places, all the way back in the book of Galatians, which many conclude is Paul's earliest letter. Titus is there. Paul brings Titus along with him when he goes to Jerusalem, and from Galatians we learn that Titus is a Gentile. And so when he goes to Jerusalem, Paul does not have Titus circumcised, much to the relief of Titus, I'm sure. But it's not just because to avoid physical pain, it's because Titus is a case study of what it means to belong to the people of God. It does not take a physical action, it takes faith alone in Christ alone. Titus is not inexperienced, he's true, he has his chops. He pops up in 2 Corinthians. He's Paul's delegate to this difficult church in Corinth. He, Titus sends, uh, Paul sends Titus there to a difficult church to do the difficult task of asking for money. There are famished-stricken Christians in Jerusalem. Paul is taking out the collection for them. So here's Titus, his, his protege. It's reasonable to conclude, I think, that Titus probably received the gospel ministry 
that Paul has just talked about. I wonder if Titus came to faith as a result of Paul's preaching. I wonder if Titus grew in the knowledge of Christ as a result of Paul's teaching. I don't have to wonder that Titus was prepared for ministry as a result of Paul's discipleship to him. As this letter continues, Paul tells Titus he wants to see the kind of relationship that he has with him across all the churches in Crete. So maybe one last mini takeaway for you all. Find a Paul in your life and find a Titus in your life. Find a Paul, somebody who is smarter than you, who is holier than you, who is wiser than you. My friend, it is possible because none of us are Jesus. And, and ask them and just hang around that person. Find a Titus, someone who is lesser along with the faith, and who you can invest, read scripture with, pray with, show what it looks like to love the Lord and to love others and to serve the church. Find a Paul, find a Titus. Paul offers Titus an approach to gospel ministry that's worth emulating. This kind of ministry, it doesn't spring from selfish desires. I'm so humbled that at the end of Paul's life, he's not seeking to expand his platform. He's seeking to build Christ's kingdom, even still. The kind of ministry Paul commends for Titus, it requires hard work and toil. But its fuel is not just elbow grease and a can-do attitude. This gospel ministry's values are grace and peace. That's how Paul closes his paragraph. In grace, Paul says, in chapter 2, verse 11, God has brought salvation and trained us to live godly. In grace, chapter 3, verse 7, God has justified us so that we can receive eternal life. And as a result of this grace that comes through Christ, we now have peace with God. The Hebrew word is shalom. Reconciled. Once far off, but now brought near. So what Titus's job is, as he reads his epistle, to, is to administer the grace and peace of the gospel amid churches that are beset by ills and hankering for direction. And as he goes forward in this difficult task, he can go forward in the hope, in the sure hope of eternal life. My friends, let's do the same with God's help. Let's pray for us. Our God, we did not choose you. We did not love you first, but you loved us first. Not because of the works in us, because of, of any good that you saw in us, but despite of who we were. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you died for your enemies to make them your friends. May we live like that. May we live close to you. May, may we impart the grace we have received to others so that more may come to faith in this great Savior so that more would be built upon the solid foundation of the truth of your word, and that we would all persevere because of the sure hope 